time once again for Sports Sidebar, covering sports for Northeast Ohio and sometimes even a little outside that area. Sports Sidebar, where we prove that a little knowledge is dangerous, but even less knowledge makes it a little easier to fill an hour. Now on to our hosts, Captain Bill and Dave. And welcome to another, another, yet another sports sidebar. Captain Bill is out on assignment. You're going to be stuck with me today. And uh, so since I don't have uh, Captain Bill here being my co-host, I got a different co-host for this week. It's going to be Mr. Bob Feller. That's right. Rapid Robert Feller, the great Cleveland Indian pitcher, will be our co-host today in a way. Uh, I went back and dug out some 1966 recordings of the old Bob Feller show. They were five-minute tidbits, actually, with commercials, so therefore they were about three minutes apiece, where he would tell a particular sports story, whether it be basketball or baseball or, or something like that. So in between our different articles, we're going to have a clip from... This five from the, the Bob Feller show from 1966. And, uh, let's see. Before we do our first story, well, no, we got it. We're going to go ahead and get into our first story. We've got a couple different articles here. Again, uh, as not a whole lot is going on as basketball is heading in towards the home stretch, we're starting to get towards the March Madness and uh, all the uh, brackets that come with that. Because we still have you still have your different conference uh, uh, playoffs, so that we can find out who's going to actually make it to the uh, March Madness. And uh, NFL was wrapped up its combines in Indianapolis, and uh, not much going on there. So there's really not a whole lot. Uh, baseball's a spring training. If you're listening in to the ball games, you're getting to hear a bunch of names that you'll need a scorecard for. That especially in the, the case of the Cleveland Guardians, uh, you're, you're not going to really have a whole lot there to uh, uh, that you're. There's not a whole lot of room for somebody. They've got, yeah, might be one or two spots that are kind of uh, backup spots that might be available, but for the most part, this team is pretty much set with what we had. An exciting team last year. Looking forward to what they bring. Way overachieved last year. Let's hope they continue on. With that success this year, and with the coach we have, with amazing Terry Francona, uh, we did, uh, um, well, it just, he's been manager of the year three times in the last 10 years since he's been here uh, with the, uh, this organization. And has World Series wins with Boston, and before that was in Philadelphia. He wasn't so successful in Philadelphia. He had some pretty good success in Boston. Coming here, He's uh, been phenomenal. As of 10 years, he's been our coach here. And coming back healthy this year, which is really important and exciting here. Uh, he's probably in some of the best health he's been in several years, ready to and ready to go. And he's the reason this organization really takes what they have. He knows what people can do and how they can do it, has the confidence in them. And it's just amazing what this man has been able to do with a medium market team. We're going to leave it at that. Uh, we're going to have the Bob Feller pieces in between. We're going to start off with, uh, we have a couple articles here. We'll start off with one here on gambling revenue hit <clears throat> record last year. This is by Catherine Sayer uh, out of the Wall Street Journal. 
Gambling in the U.S. reached record last year as commercial casinos and online betting apps reaped in more than $60 billion in gambling revenues, an industry trade group said Wednesday. Commercial gambling revenue last year broke the previous record of $53 billion set in 2021, increasing about 14% year over year, according to an American Gaming Association report. The figures don't include tens of billions of dollars in revenue generated by tribal-owned casinos. Casinos, online sports betting, and lotteries have spread across the U.S. last year. 34 states and the District of Columbia had commercial gambling, including casinos, sports betting, and online casinos, according to the trade group. Two states, Hawaii and Utah, have kept all forms of gambling off limits, while other states have tribal casinos or government-run lotteries that aren't included in the group's commercial gambling figures. Americans flock to the Las Vegas Strip and other casinos in the early days of the pandemic reopenings when consumers had fewer choices for entertainment. Casinos in Las Vegas and beyond continue to win American spending as the economy reopened more broadly. Betting activity on Super Bowl reached a record this year, but the outcome of the game produced lackluster results for the sports betting companies in terms of profits, according to analysts and sportsbooks executives. The industry exceeded revenue expectations last year, Bill Miller, the trade group's chief executive, said in a written statement. Even as we navigate microeconomic headwinds, I am optimistic about the year ahead, said Mr. Miller. Consumer spending on gambling has stayed strong in recent months, despite economic uncertainty, he said. Across the U.S., gamblers lost $34.2 billion on slot machines last year, up about 5% from nearly $32.5 billion in 2021, according to the report. Players lost $10 billion on table games, such as blackjack, roulette, up nearly 14% from $8.8 billion. Sports betting, a relatively newcomer to the U.S. game industry, generated a record $7.5 billion from more than $93 billion in wagers on sports betting, according to the report. Online casino games generated about $5 billion in revenue, up about 35% from the previous year, according to the report. Some 84 million American adults, or about 34% of the population, visited a casino last year, according to the group. The big operators in Las Vegas reported hitting their own high marks last year. MGM Resorts International said last week that the company's casinos in Las Vegas and other U.S. cities had record profits in the quarter Last quarter of 2022, the company expects the strong performance to continue this year. 
Wynn Resorts Limited, Chief Executive Craig Billings, said last week that Wynn Las Vegas on the Strip had $816 million in adjusted earnings in 2022. Tribal-owned casinos generated $39 billion in revenue in the 2020-2021 fiscal year, according to the most recent revenue report from the National Indian Gaming Casino, uh, Commission. So it's the National Indian Gaming Commission. All right, that's going to do it for this first part. Let's now head things over, take things over, and hand them over to Bob Feller from 1966. It's not often when baseball fans can point to a pitcher and say he hurled two no-hitters in a week. It's especially rare when a fan can say that it almost happened to the same team the second time. I remember in 1938 when Cincinnati's great left-hander Johnny Vandermeer pitched a no-hitter against the Boston Braves. And I also remember Johnny coming right back and doing the same thing against the old Brooklyn Dodgers. Well, nine years later, Cincinnati had a big fellow by the name of Yule Blackwell. He could really fire that ball. Batters compared Blackie to a man falling out of a tree when he came in with his sidearm pitch. In June 1947, just nine years after Vandermeer's double no-hit feat, Blackwell found himself in the same spot. He had just no-hit Boston, and Cincinnati's next rival would be the Dodgers. Blackwell didn't disappoint the loyal Red fans this day. Inning after inning, he mowed down the Dodgers. The first inning, the second, the third, the fourth. Blackie was pitching another no-hitter. But his opponent on the mound, Joe Hatton, was tough too. In fact, Blackie and Joe were hooked up in not only a scoreless game, but neither had allowed a hit. Hatton was wild in the fifth inning, and the Reds took advantage of it and scored a run. But they still failed to get a hit. In the sixth inning, the Reds finally broke a hitless spell. Eddie Miller lined one of Hatton's pitches into left field corner for a double. This took some of the attention off Hatton, but it still remained as Blackwell set the Dodgers down one, two, three in the sixth. Blackwell walked the first Dodger in the eighth, but he was quickly erased on a fast double play. But Blackwell wasn't out of trouble yet. Duke Snyder was the next batter. Blackie received more support from the fans as he reared back to pitch to Snyder. Strike one, then strike two. The park erupted with a roar as Snyder went down swinging. Eddie Miller drove in three more Cincinnati runs in the ninth, so Blackwell had a comfortable lead as he went into the ninth inning. Only three outs to go, and Blackie would join another Cincinnati hurler as the only pitcher ever to hurl back-to-back no-hitters. We'll find out what happened in the ninth inning at Crosley Field in 60 seconds. Gene Hermansky was the first batter to face Blackwell in the ninth, and he lifted an easy fly to the outfield. Only two more outs to go. The next batter was Eddie Stanky, always dangerous to plate. He slammed the first pitch, Back to the mound, through Blackwell's legs, over second base, and into center field, the first Brooklyn hit. Before the inning was over, Jackie Robinson had also signaled, but the damage had already been done. Blackie retired to side, and Cincinnati won the ball game. But for a couple of pitches, Blackwell would have had a second straight no-hitter. All right, thank you, Bob. Uh, we're back from our Bob Feller's uh, uh, show from 1966, well, sticking with the legalized betting, says five takeaways from the first month of legalized sports betting in Ohio. Because remember, in Ohio, the apps were not legal until January 1st. And who made that first bet in Ohio? They made sure it was the one and only Pete Rose. All right. This is my Max Philby from the Columbus Dispatch. Ohioans bet more than $1 billion on sports the first month it became legal to do so throughout the state. 
The first revenue numbers for sports betting released Tuesday offer clues to the industry's future and its effect on Ohioans. Bets are likely to increase in various sports seasons <clears throat> commence later this year, said John Holden, an assistant professor of business and sports management of Oklahoma State University. <clears throat> Along with a rise in bets, Ohio is likely to see a jump in gambling addiction, said Derek Longmire, executive director of the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. With March Madness around the corner, sports betting is likely to remain in the spotlight, Holden said, but that means that any issues with the sports betting will also be under intense scrutiny as the year progresses. Here's what Holden and Longmire said they expect to happen in the year ahead with sports betting now legal statewide. January billion dollar in bets was big, but it could even be it could have been even bigger. <clears throat> January is usually a big month for the sports betting, but numbers could have been scary bigger if Ohio State University had made the college football national championship, Holden said. Going forward, Holden said he expects March will be a big month for bets in Ohio due to the NCAA basketball tournament. As the NBA winds down, summer will be a down period for sports betting because baseball simply doesn't attract as many bettors. Holden said, but betting will ramp up, back up dramatically in late summer and early fall as Ohio State takes the field again and as the NFL season gets underway, Holden said. College football is big, but NFL playoffs are king, Holden said. Problem gambling has likely increased and already increased in Ohio. Although it's hard to know for sure, this early, gambling addiction is likely on the rise, Longmire said. In January, the network's helpline received 1,492 calls, he said. That's more than triple the number of calls the helpline received in January of 2022. Calls for the increased calls are likely Twofold, Longmire said, <coughs> sports betting ads that have popped up everywhere are required to list the helpline number. Those ads have likely made the helpline more visible than ever, <coughs> excuse me, before Longmire said. But Longmire said it's likely that it increased awareness isn't the only reason in the rise in calls. We've already seen it, Longmire said. It's definitely a combination and this was definitely something we knew was coming. Ohioans spent billions of dollars, mostly online. The vast majority of bets placed in games on the first month of legalized sports betting weren't placed in person. Instead, Ohioans largely wagered on sports from their phones, tablets, and computers. Data from the Ohio Casino Control Commission shows. Of the more than $1.1 billion spent on sports bets in January, $1.09 billion was placed online through sports books. By comparison, just $22.9 million were placed at casinos or other retail spaces and $850.336 were placed 
at the kiosk supervised by the Ohio Lottery. If you have online betting, that's how people are going to do it, Holden said. For casinos, sports betting is another way to bring people to use or in the door. It's like having a big act come and play. Next point, betters can say goodbye to bonuses soon. For Ohio, for months, <clears throat> Ohioans have been subjected to an advertising blitz that blanketed the airwaves, social media, and billboards throughout the state. Often those ads promoted so-called <clears throat> bonuses or credits people can simply get for joining sports books or wagering a certain amount of money. In Ohio, sports books paid out nearly $320 million in promotional credits to bettors, according to the Ohio Casino Control Commission. But Ohio doesn't allow sports books to deduct those promotional dollars from tax revenue. So those kinds of offers won't last, <coughs> Holden said. Right now, it's such a competitive market for fan acquisition, Holden said. But those promotional bets don't make a lot of economic sense long term. So those won't stick around. And the fifth takeaway, new laws are likely to target sports betting. Despite being legal, for just two months, sports betting has already come under fire from Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and the commission tasked with oversight. <coughs> Along with fines that have been levied against various sports books, the state may try to increase how much it taxes sports books, said Longmire. Ohio has a 10% tax on sportsbook revenue, and while more than $1.1 billion in bets were placed in January, sportsbooks brought in $208.9 million in revenue, translating to $20.89 million in taxes for Ohio. DeWine Longmire said, has proposed doubling the tax to 20%. Holden said he wouldn't be surprised if more states look to increase taxes on sports gambling. New York, he said, has the highest tax rate of 51% on sports betting. Holden also expects sports gambling will face harsher regulation going forward as it becomes legal in more states. Legislation to better control sports books would likely gain bipartisan support, he said. I think we will watch them to gather against gambling, Holden said, if state and federal regulators, I think everyone is growing a little concerned. If things don't get toned down in the not-too-distant future, we'll see more done. Okay. You know what? It's uh, time for another Bob Feller show. So let's break away and Bob... Rapid Robert, take it away. The basketball today is dominated by the big man. But as long as the game is played, there will always be a place for the little guy. This is a story about a basketball player named Ernie Cavalry who played at Rhode Island State. Ernie was only 5 foot 10 inches tall and weighed a wee 140 pounds. But oh, how he could shoot. He was a small man in the middle 1940s, so you can imagine how he would stack up in today's game of giants. Rhode Island earned a berth in the 1946 National Invitation Tourney in New York's Madison Square Garden. The NIT, as it is popularly known, is one of the top attractions of the basketball season. 
Rhode Island was paired against tall and talented Bowling Green of Kentucky in the opening round, and the New England team was considered the underdog. Six foot eleven inch Don Otten was a scoring star of Bowling Green, and it was a mild surprise as Rhode Island held a slim thirty-four to thirty-two lead as the team left the court at the halftime intermission. How long would it take before Bowling Green's superiority took its toll? The fans wondered. So did the coaches. But the Rhode Island coach had one ace in the hole. His sharp-shooting little guard, Ernie Calvary. Ernie was the reason why Rhode Island was still in the game. The second half opened and the two schools matched basket for basket. Neither side could move to any kind of a lead. Otten was controlling the boards for the bigger Bowling Green quintet. McCovery was picking up support from Garden fans with his one-handed shots, his ball hawking, and his all-around ability to keep his club in the game. The game moved along. Rhode Island in the lead, then Bowling Green. Then, with the clock showing only three minutes and 20 seconds to play, Otten fouled out. A break for Rhode Island. The big guy had scored 31 points and pulled down almost as many rebounds. Ernie and his teammates had received new hope now. Cavalry had the ball. One minute and ten seconds remained. Ernie shot. The ball switched through the nets. The score was tied at 72-72. Bowling Green decided to play for only one shot. Bowling Green team didn't want to make any mistakes. One shot was all it needed. Rhode Island didn't want to foul and send a player to the free throw line. The clock showed just ten seconds of play. Vern Dunham drove for the basket. The shot was good. Bowling Green led 74-72. Rhode Island had the ball and moved down court. A whistle. A Rhode Island player had been fouled. But Rhode Island waved the foul. Only two seconds remained. We'll be back in 60 seconds for the throwing windup. Ernie Cowery was a marked man as the teams lined up. Two Bowling Green players guarded him. But Ernie was a man for the final shot. He took the pass from out of bounds, whirled, and fired a long desperation shot. As the ball sailed high into the air, the buzzer sounded. The ball finally came down and through the nets. It was good. Ernie Cowery had tied the game with a 55-foot desperation shot at the buzzer. One of the greatest shots of basketball history. Rhode Island went on to beat Bowling Green in overtime, and it reached the final round only to lose to Kentucky. But to some 18,000 basketball fans, the biggest thrill of the 1946 tourney came when a little guy named Cowery tossed in an almost unbelievable shot that took Rhode Island to the finals of the NIT. Okay, thanks, Bob. I hope you're enjoying these 1966 Bob Feller programs that we're mixing in here between our articles. Baseball's given up to the ghosts. <clears throat> this is a Jason Gay column. I always enjoy his columns. Uh, it doesn't always do sports, but most of them are. And his side, uh, his secondary headline, an extra innings gimmick is here to stay for Major League regular season. This is <clears throat> stated by Major League Baseball has decided it can live with ghosts. Specifically, it's Ghost Runner. The runner automatically placed on second base at the start of each extra inning. Frame until the game <clears throat> is finished. This Daffy device was put in place during the MLB's abbreviated COVID series uh, season in 2020. And it has stuck around <clears throat> since in an effort to generate quick runs, avoid deep extra inning slogs, and burned out bullpens, and complete the average baseball time in less time than it takes to ride a tortoise from Chicago to San Diego. To be clear, it's not literally. A ghost, the team is uh, batting, puts one of its own human players on second base. Ghost runners is an old term from sandlot and wiffle ball games in which ghosts and imaginary runners are deployed when there aren't enough actual bodies to occupy and run the bases. If you imagine a Casper 
setting the twins, uh, settling the twins contest. I'm sorry to disappoint you. <clears throat> it turns out <clears throat> these ghosts have worked cutting down on lengthy extra inning battles. Now MLB <coughs> makes them a permanent feature before you start howling about the desecration of the fading national pastime. Ghost runners will only be a regular season thing. They will go into ectoplasm containment storage during the playoffs and extra inning games can resume taking as long as medical school. <laughs> you should also know that the ghost is beloved by players who purity of the game aside aren't that jazzed about the prospect of being trapped on a diamond plane, the Mariners, till 3 a.m. on a Wednesday. Baseball players exhausted at the idea of long baseball games just like us. MLB, at least, is the right idea, experimenting to accelerate its pace of play. The same can't be said of the NBA basketball, which is heading in the opposite direction with video reviews and coaches challenging, threatening, challenges threatening to turn a joyous and fluid sport into an exasperating forensic probe. Baseball has <clears throat> video review too, and whenever the practice expands, I want to ask how much have our sports watching lives been enhanced by replays? Are you the type of person who needs uh, furious accuracy from sporting entertainment? <clears throat> are, are you okay with an occasional human mistake or miss? Do I think baseball is on to something with its ghosts? Uh, I think it's time we start making them socially acceptable <clears throat> in other workplaces. Think of being able to spend a ghost, uh, send a ghost worker in your stead at to a 9 a.m. staff meeting. Think about deploying a ghost for your next office holiday party. You get to go out and have fun dinner with your family, and the ghost is trapped in the corner hearing the co-workers babble on about an upcoming ski trip. Of course, families would also appreciate the occasional ghost who wouldn't want a ghost that could make your place at Thanksgiving, birthdays, and destination uh, weddings. What about a ghost that could respond to all groups' texts? I guess we're close to reaching this point with the advancement of artificial intelligence, which promises robots to solve our moral and social dilemmas in exchange for giving them total control of the planet. A fair bargain, but I sense a complication. If sophisticated AI is truly capable of understanding the human condition and effectively becoming a human, it's only a matter of time before it comes back from a family Thanksgiving, says, says Stroop, uh, Matter of time before it comes back from a family Thanksgiving says never again. That's why I say ghosts, not robots. If ghosts can handle extra innings of baseball, they can handle anything. Well, that was a little rough. I'm going to take a break here. We're going to bring in Bob Feller for another Bob Feller moment.
So many great stories have been told about the Kentucky Derby, and this is one of the finest. It all started with a horse by the name of Aristides in 1875. Horses like the import Omar Khayyam in 1917 won the famed Run for the Roses at Louisville, Kentucky. Other horses like 20 Grand, Omaha, War Admiral, Whirl Away, Count Fleet, Assault, and Citation have been in the winner's circle. And when it comes to jockeys, the list naturally is just as long. Riders like Eddie R. Carroll, Ted Atkinson, to name a couple. This is not a story about R. Carroll or War Admiral or Citation, but it's about a great jockey of another era and about a horse he rode in the 1930 Kentucky Derby. Right now, we won't mention the jockey's name or the horse he rode that day. Our story goes back a bit further than the 1930 Kentucky Derby. In the late 20s, this jockey had a problem to keep his weight down. Finally, he decided to call it quits on the track and become an owner. But his problems only started then. He lost money, plenty of it. He knew then that his business was aboard a horse. So as it would happen, this jockey was aboard a favorite in the 1930 Kentucky Derby. Fifteen horses were in the Derby field that day, as the horses passed the grandstand for the first time, the favorite was in fifth place. As the field rounded the first turn, the jockey inched his mount closer to the leaders. There was still a long race ahead. But the jockey wanted to give his mount a little push to see if he was in a running mood. The jockey knew his horse had it. In fact, he had to hold him back. A filly was in the lead as the horses moved down the backstretch. The jockey let his mount move ahead of the filly. Near the end of the stretch, another horse, Crack Brigade, made a move. The jockey let the other mount get within a length or so, then urged his horse on again. He didn't need much urging. Into the far turn, the favorite began to open a big lead. Into the stretch, another horse, Gallant Knight, made a bid. But it was in vain. The jockey of our star and his horse moved closer to the finish line and across it. A comfortable two lengths in front of the second horse. It was a popular victory, a great comeback for a famous jockey. In 60 seconds, we'll return to find out who the jockey was. The race so inspired a sports writer in the press box that the writer, the late Damon Runyon, scribbled this poem. Say, have they turned the pages back to the past once more? Back to the race in ages, and a derby out of the yore. Say, don't tell me I'm Daffy. Ain't that the same old grin? Why, it's that guy named Sandy, booting a winner in. Earl Sandy had made his comeback aboard a horse named Gallant Fox. Okay, we're back from the Bob Feller Show from 1966, and we'll continue on with another Jason Gay article on baseball games are on the clock. Now, this is one thing he didn't talk about the last article, so we should talk about it here. Hang on to your caps. The fading pastime accelerating its tortoise-like pace of play. Let me get this straight. Baseball games now end too quickly? There I was, trying to have a quiet Saturday, hiding in the basement, neglecting my family, watching college basketball games I didn't care about, when a fury erupted across social media. The Red Sox-Braves spring training game had ended in a very bizarre way, on a time clock violation. Huh? What in the... What? Fans howled in disbelief. It was a Babe Ruth had risen from the afterlife and told everyone he was now a vegan pole vaulter. <laughs> oh, kiss those hot dogs goodbye, babe. Uh, here's what happened. The Red Sox and the Braves were tied 6-6 with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Atlanta's Cal Conley was at the plate, bases loaded, 3-2 count. It was as dramatic a scenario as you get in spring training, which is to say as dramatic as... A Labrador retriever snoozing in a hammock. Okay, be nice. Be nice, Jason. Uh, that's when Connolly got busted for a time violation. 
Baseball has installed a pitch clock for 2023 season, hoping to accelerate its leisurely pace of play. Pitchers now have 20 seconds to throw their next pitch, <coughs> and there are runners when there are runners on base, 15 seconds when the bases are empty. A catcher needs to be ready to catch with a nine seconds left. If either the pitcher or the catcher fails to comply, the umpire calls an automatic ball. And the batters? They need to be in the batter's box, ready to swing. With eight seconds left, they if they aren't, the umpire calls a strike. That's the rule commonly apparently violated, and that's why the umpire signaled a third strike and third out. Game over. Atlanta-Boston would finish tied 6-6, bitterly unresolved. Players were confused. Fans veered from the entertainment, again, from amusement to theatrical rage. A major league ball game ending abruptly on a time issue? It was another sign of civilization's decline. Further evidence of our slide toward doom? And off, a walk-off alarm clock? Honestly, I, th- I think it's great and very overdue. In a criminous, divided times, <coughs> it's a topic most reasonable people can agree on. Baseball games take far too long. Until recently, you could walk from downtown Fort Lauderdale to New Hampshire in the time it took the average major league game to finish. Its growth utterly out of sync with our high-speed prime delivery, a skip intro, double drive-through line modern lives, baseball was turning into a melancholy relic like a railroad museum or a crabby sports column published in a newspaper. To be clear, <clears throat> I appreciate life's stillness. I don't think everything needs to be rushed I occasionally go five minutes without looking at my phone, and I can eat a half a bowl of cereal while looking out a window. If the baseball doesn't do something to speed itself up, it's going the way of the Betamax rental. Now it's doing something with uh, with the pitch clock, batter clock, is a revelation. According to the journal's baseball writer, Lindsay Adler, <clears throat> 11 of the 16-day spring training games headed into Sunday's play ended in around 2 hours and 30 minutes. That's not a time cut. That's a radical makeover. A half hour off the recent regular season pace. One Sunday, the game glided in on a, Thursday, uh, on a thrillingly brisk 2 hours and seven minutes. It's going to get the point you'll be talking to or up new hobbies or taking up new hobbies with all your free time from accelerated baseball. Wow. Did you find time to learn French and build that pottery studio in the backyard? Baseball installed a clock. This is how it should be and how baseball once was. Having pitchers pitch, have batters bat. How much of your existence have you already surrendered to this maddening game, which <clears throat> dwaddles like the obvious customer in an airport Starbucks? A, a tall is the small one, right? As your flight announces its final boarding, if the time check means a game occasionally ends with a controversial call, so be it. We will live. 
Yes, I know the purists hate this. The old ball game won't play as it did in 1909. They'll argue that the this is another sad cave to technology, <clears throat> and our culture is vapid, hurrying that the lack of clock was part of what makes baseball great. And it ended when it ended, untethered to time. I don't disagree. This is a sad cave to uh, technology and our culture of vapid hurrying. But baseball needs to try. We can't complain that games are too long and then complain about efforts to shorten them. Besides, I think Shohoni Atani is what makes baseball great. Mookie Betts is what makes baseball great. Sipping a $12 beer on a summer afternoon is what makes baseball great. Sipping a $2 beer you snuck into the stadium in your shirt sleeve is even greater. A baseball game that takes longer than The Godfather Part 2? Not so great. Baseball doesn't get the luxury of a gentle expiration. It is up to against it. If you haven't been following baseball and it's imperiled regional sports networks, wake up. Basically, a number of local networks that carry major league games are saying that they can no longer uh, afford the sports, the sport. That local TV money has been critical to the finances of the ball clubs. Losing it will disrupt the economic uh, model of the of the uh, losing of uh, model of the sport far worse than losing twelve dollar beer. This is no time to shed eyeballs, hence the belated push to speed things up. There's also the automatic runner deployed to second base in extra innings. Another tweak the old school hates, but has come to be beloved by teams and players. The pitch clock is one of the most aggressive move yet, and it's sitting there like a shot clock off the inside of the home plate, uh, tick, tick, tickling down. It adds. Uh, it adds uh, another tweak to the old school. It adds the edgy vibe, like someone's trying to deactivate dynamite on a CBS drama. Over the course of the game, you get used to it. So you will. So will Major League Baseball their players. Hitters will learn. Pitchers will learn. This past weekend's controversy feels like something we'll look back upon and laugh about. Remember, when everybody went nuts about the Boston at Atlanta spring training game, it was worth a shot. I applaud baseball's experiment. It's time. All right, that's going to do it for this Jason uh, Gay article. Up next, it's time to turn things over to uh, Bob Feller from the Bob Feller Show from 1966. As we once again, I go here and pick out our next article. It's difficult to pinpoint the toughest situation for a pitcher. Naturally, a bases-loaded, no-out situation in the bottom of the ninth would be a nightmare for any pitcher. But how about a pitcher who must join his club late in the season after, say, four years in the service? No spring training, no exhibitions, no major league tune-ups of any kind. Well... I know how it feels, because I was in that kind of a situation August 14th, 1945. I was back in my club, the Cleveland Indians, and my manager, Lou Boudreaux, nominated me to face the league-leading Detroit Tigers. I took my warm-up pitches, and I knew I'd find out soon enough if I had it. 
The first Detroit batter, Jimmy Outlaw, was a strikeout victim. I felt good. The second batter was out on a fly to center field. Then Doc Kramer caught hold of one of my fastballs and sent it to the deep right center for a triple. Hank Greenberg was the next batter. I knew I had my work cut out for me. I worked especially hard on Hank. I simply strike past him, then made him swing and miss one. Another pitch, and Greenberg was caught looking. The inning was over, and Kramer was stranded on third. I had my first test, but there were eight more innings to go. My teammates touched opposing pitcher Hal Newhauser for two runs in our half of the first inning. My control was a bit shaky as I faced the Tigers in the second inning, and I walked the first two batters. Long ball hitting Rudy York was the next batter. I threw hard, and Rudy swung and missed. Then another strike, and finally a third. I had two more outs to go before I could get out of the inning safely. The next batter was a pop-up, and so was the other. Paul Richards, now general manager of the Houston Colts, was the first Tiger batter in the third, and he doubled. I walked the next batter. There was some activity in the Indian bullpen, and I knew it. I had to get out of this trouble myself, but a single scored one run, and another hit sent the tying run across. Somehow, I finished the inning without any more scoring. It was now 2-2, a brand new ball game. My teammates got me a run in the third inning, and I was determined now to go all the way and win this one. I set the Tigers down without a hit in the fourth, then the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. I was really rolling along, but I still had the ninth inning to go. In 60 seconds, I'll be back for the final inning of a game I will always remember. My teammates had picked up another run for me, and the Indians led 4-2 to two as I went to the mound for the ninth inning. I retired the first batter. Now I had two to go. The second man was a strikeout victim. My fastball was sizzling, and my arm appeared to be getting stronger as the innings rolled along. Lead-off man Jimmy Outlaw was next. I reared back and fired. He swung and missed. The next pitch tipped the outside corner for a called strike. Only one more to go. I was ready, but so was Outlaw. The pitch, strike three. My return from the war was a big success. I knew then I still had a lot of good pitching left in my right arm, and the almost four-year hitch in the Navy did not hurt me. All right, we're back from 1966 in the Bob Feller Show. Up next is Stark County. I'm trying again. Start again. Is another Stark County golf course closing? Perhaps. This is by Tom Botus of the Cant Repository <coughs> out of Lake Township. Seven Hills Country Club <coughs> may not reopen this year. The 18-hole public course <coughs> near Hartville has been closed since October, and course owners have largely cut off communication with customers and league officials, say some who've worked there last year. And the radio silence in Seven Hills got so loud <coughs> that the northernohio.golf, a website dedicated to golf in this part of the state, posted a story on February 9th proclaiming Seven Hills will not open this year and that it will be sold in five-acre lots for new houses. The story cited sources, but there is growing evidence the business is indeed shuttered. Sources have told the repository the course is closed. A Google summary and review page for Seven Hills lists the course as <coughs> permanently closed. The course phone number is disconnected or out of service. Operators have not renewed its Stark County Health Department food service license for this year. And two houses essentially located in the course are for sale. Gassettios bought course from Grand Family. <clears throat> Meanwhile, customers such as Lake High Boys Golf Team have started to look for new homes. Team coach uh, Tom Grubb 
has heard the rumors that Seven Hills is history. But I guess I'm still holding out hope, he added. He said a Seven Hills employee told him last fall the course was closing for good. At first, he assumed it meant for the day. Then he realized it was for the season. And now he fears it's permanent. Grubb said that it's more difficult for schools to find home courses for practice and matches because there are fewer courses. If closed, Seven Hills would be the third Stark County club lost in the past five years, joining Tam O'Shanter and Skyline Pines. James Gestato, a Mount Union, or I'm sorry, a Mount Eaton dentist, is part of a group that owns Seven Hills. He has not returned several phone calls and text messages seeking comment for the story. The course was built in 1968 and purchased by George and Peggy Grand four years later. It remained in the Grand family for nearly half a century until the two adjacent houses for a combined $2.7 million in 2020. The Gestato Group appears to be comprised of James Gestato, his wife, Sherry, their daughter, Madison, uh, Madison Gestato, Gilbert, and her husband, Marcus Gilbert, a former NFL player. The quartet is identified as equal members on the course owner, according to disclosure information for its state liquor license. Seven Hills purchases were made at a time shortly before Castadio Gilbert, an attorney, launched a bid for Congress. However, the former Miss Ohio USA, a Republican, was bested by Democrat Amelia Sykes in the 13th district race in November. The house at 11954 William Penn Avenue Northeast has since been transformed or transferred to Gestadio Family Living Trusts and is on the market for $799,000. The other was sold by the company to Marcus and Madison Gestado Gilbert and is on the market for $749,000. Tom McCauley, a Howard Hanna real estate service agent <coughs> selling the two houses, said he has no information about the golf course. Lake Township Zoning Administrator Nicole Wilkinson said she's heard rumors. However, she said no one connected to the golf course has contacted her office in the uh, 140-acre course zoned for low-density residential, meaning houses could be built there. The township zoning code could permit lots as small as just less than a half acre to two acres in size, depending on how a developer approached the project. She said, any development that altered use of the property from the golf course, she added, that would likely have to be submitted to the Stark County Regional Planning Commission for approval. That has not happened, at least not yet, anyway. For Yankee fans, a fall is not complete unless their club is in the World Series. For other American League hopefuls, the years drag on and on without a representative in the Fall Classic. The year 1959 is one year that fans in the Windy City of Chicago will never forget. And one season the Yankee fans would like to forget. The White Sox and the Cleveland Indians were in a struggle for first place. The Yankees had already been eliminated. Bill Vack, one of baseball's most colorful officials, was president of the White Sox. 
fans couldn't keep up with their stunts and attractions offered by Vec during the 1959 campaign. But the best of all, the team was winning. When the White Sox pulled into Cleveland one evening in September, they sported a three-and-a-half game lead over the Indians. This was it. A victory over the Indians, and the so-called magic number would be zero. The Indians still had a chance to overtake the White Sox, but they couldn't afford to lose another game. More than 54,000 fans jammed Municipal Stadium in Cleveland. Thousands of others back in Chicago watched and listened to the game on television and radio. Manager Al Lopez decided to go with his ace early win for the big one. Cleveland manager Joe Gordon named the young right-hander Jim Perry. Wynn had some anxious moments in the second inning. Minnie Minosa was on third base, and Rocky Calavito was a batter. Calavito swung and sent a fly ball to left field. Al Smith camped under it, but he knew that Speedy Minosa represented a lead run for the Indians. Smith caught the ball and on the run fired to catcher Johnny Romano. The young backstop flicked the throw and tagged Minosa out of the plate. The Sox tagged Perry for a couple of runs in the third inning. Louis Aparicio sent one run across with a double and scored on a double by Billy Goodman. The Sox had confidence now. They took the field for the fourth inning. Wynn was in trouble in the fifth, but escaped with only one Indian tally. Jim Grant was on the mound for the Indians in the sixth, and Al Smith and Jim Rivera greeted him with homers. As the ninth inning approached, the Sox had a 4-2 lead. Bob Shaw had replaced Wynn on the mound. In 60 seconds, we are back for the exciting ninth inning. Shaw retired leadoff batter Woody Hill on a pop-up. But Jim Baxter singled off the pitcher's glove, and relief herder Jack Harshman followed with a single to right. Jimmy Pearsall was next, and he sent a liner that Nellie Fox knocked down to second base. The runner held third. The bases were loaded. Manager Lopez took the slow walk to the mound. He singled for Jerry Staley, the 39-year-old relief ace. It was Staley's 65th appearance of the season. But no appearance could be as important as this one. Vic Power was the first batter to face Staley. He knew that one pitch could make the difference between victory and defeat. Power swung at the first pitch and grounded to Aparicio at short. Then Louis scooped it up, touched second base for the force, and fired to Kuzuski at first to complete a double play. The game was over. The White Sox had won 4-2. And back in Chicago, air raid sirens signaled the first White Sox pennant in 40 years. Thank you once again, Bob Feller, for another uh, wonderful article, uh, another item from your 1966 radio program. NBA rookie finds a fix for his free throw woes. Jeremy Sokin was one of the league's worst shooters from the charity stripe. <clears throat> then his coaches told him to try them one-handed. This is by Robert O'Connell. Two months into his NBA career, San Antonio Spurs rookie Jeremy Shawin had a problem. Over his first 23 games, he'd shot 24 free throws and made just 11. <clears throat> Only four players in the league with at least 20 attempts had a worse percentage. And Schoen found a fix <clears throat> in the form of one of the stranger tactics to grace professional basketball floor recently. The change came in the mid-December game between the Spurs and the Houston Rockets when Sochin stepped into the line at the End of the first quarter. Instead of using his normal stroke with his left hand supporting the ball as he launched it with his right, Sean hoisted it up from his waist with his right hand alone. He then held it at a shoulder height and waiter with platter posture. It spun it towards the rim. There is no immediate uh, dividends. Sean missed the first two free throws and went one for four overall from the foul line against the Rockets. But the debut was a blip at what once 
since proven to be an astonishing statistical turnaround. Over 26 games since the switch, Sochin has improved his free-throwing percentage by more than 30 points to 77.5%. The technique gets him sideways looks and may also save his career. The game came from... Uh, the idea came from Greg Popovich, the Spurs five-time champion head coach and assistant, Brett Brown, who approached Schoen during the pregame shoot-around and suggested he try a new routine right away. They were smiling when they said it. So I was like, are you serious? Sochin said. Then they insisted that they were. The rookie quickly got over the hesitation. I'm already shooting 40-something percent, and I don't think it can get any worse than that, he said, <clears throat> Ending, uh, and flashed his own gap-toothed grin, so why not? Sochin reworked uh, free-throw stroke, mimics the, a practice floor routine a regimen Brown assigned him at the start of the season, intended to break a shot down, into component parts. Taking a left hand away forced Sochin to center his right arm under the ball, and once he did, Brown noticed that every other element, balance, left, right, precision, arc, clicked into place. The thing that was most apparent when he shot one shot one-handed was the free throw line. He not only made it, he looked fundamentally damn near perfect, Brown said. T taken alone, the boost provided the San Antonio by Shulkin's higher hit rate as is marginal. Sochin's shot, one free throw a night, an average before the switch, and has shot 2.7 cents. The accuracy uptick means that the Spurs, unsurprisingly, margin hasn't made much difference to their present fortunes. The team is 14-47 and has lost its last 16 games. But for a young player and rebuilding franchise, the benefits extended beyond specific box scores. Sochi, a 19-year-old whirlwind with rangy athleticism and ever-updated die job <coughs> and a nickname, the Destroyer, plays at full-born driving hard into the lane to drop off short-angled passes or launch himself through defenders for dunks. The approach is the kind of that animate as uh, ascended ascendant team, but is also susceptible to scaling back. If the player carrying it out frets over the top, over the over trips to the foul line, he needs to be there mentally. That you're just dying to get there. Brown said, he's excellent at attacking. He doesn't fear going into the free throw line. The most notorious may be Ben Simmons, who entered the NBA as a top draft pick in 2016 with a supercharged version of Scholl's skill set. Simon's free throw percentage never rose above 62%, though and his career has been marked by a decreasing willingness to go to the basket. This year, Simmons will, uh, first, with the Nets, Brooklyn Nets, he is shooting worse than from the foul line. His field goal attempts 
and scoring attempts 6.9 points per game are also at the career lows, and teammates have on occasion had to beg him to assert himself in the court. Tough basketball players have been hampered by free throw struggles since the first strike was painted on hardwood. They have been willing to go only so far to solve them. The Hall of Fame guard Rick Berry, who made 89% of his free throws in the ABA and NBA in the 1960s and the 70s, has bemoaned the scarcity of players copying his iconic underhanded, underhanded wilt form. Will Chamberlain made more than 60% of his free throws only once in his career when he adopted the granny shot technique during the 1961-62 season. He dropped the approach shortly thereafter because, as he would later write, it made him feel silly. Helpfully, Schoen has an appetite for the unorthodox. One of his strengths is he doesn't care about the outside world, what they may think, said Scott Drew, Schoen's coaching during one of his college seasons at Baylor, where he shot 59% from the line. The fact that someone would make fun of something that is unique or different would probably would prohibit it for some players. Popovich said that Shom shows courage in being willing to try the one-hander. Even switching hands altogether is more common. The big men, Tristan Thompson and Mason Palumley, have both done so in recent seasons, but Shom himself considers the shot mark as self-expression as distinguishing as his green and then purple, then pink and blonde hair. It just shows up who I am. In a game against Phoenix on January 28th, Shom offered a cleanest, a clearest glimpse yet of what might eventually become an NBA player. He scored a career best 30 points by way of bruising lay-ins, a smattering of jump shots, and one thunderous jam to go alongside of his eight rebounds. The excellence of this all-around box score might have made one particular stat go unnoticed. Were it not for how he tallied it, Schoen made all five of his free throws. Well, that looks like that's going to do it for our show this week. I want to thank you for putting up with me and uh, hope you enjoyed the recordings from 1966 of the Bob Feller Show. We'll be back next week with a little bit more conventional show, in a sense. I'm hoping to grab my two sons, and the three of us will sit down there and give bits a, a bit about uh, sports, professional, and uh, certainly some college in Ohio State going on there as well. But uh, until next week, I uh, hope that you're all... Uh, have a very good week and stick around here at WEYE Radio Reading because there's something here for everyone. <laughs>